Hi, and welcome to Voices of Esme. I'm your host, Sam Stern. Today, our guest is Susan Collin Marks, a career peacemaker who helped to forge the peace accord in South Africa after Nelson Mandela was freed from prison. We spoke about the challenges inherent in South Africa post-apartheid, as well as the power of presence and peacemaking, peace negotiation as a way of life, in the family and in relationship, as well as the power and necessity of self-care. All in all, it was a lovely conversation with a truly warm-hearted and highly effective person. So with no further ado, please enjoy my conversation with Susan Collin Marks. Hello and welcome, Susan Collin Marks. It's lovely to be with you, Sam. Susan, thank you for uh, joining us today on Voices of Esalen. Um, I wanted to start off our interview by uh, asking you, is it right to call you a, a professional peacemaker? Is that how you've, how you've referred to yourself in your life? Well, what a wonderful question, because uh, for me, the lines between the prof- professional and the personal have always been uh, very blurred. And in fact, uh, throughout my working life, I've always encouraged my colleagues to bring the two together and to bring their whole selves into the work that they do, into their work in our office and in in our offices all over the world at Search for Common Ground. So uh, from my perspective, uh, I can talk about myself as a peacemaker and a peace builder. And those are good um, words to use in the broader context of my work. I haven't often used the word professional because uh, of my strong sense of the need not to separate myself and to encourage other people not to do the same. Mm, Yes. Well, you're a South African and you helped negotiate South Africa's transition to democracy following the release of Nelson Mandela from prison. Uh, I'm very curious. Please tell me about that period and about how you became a peacemaker. Well, it was the greatest privilege of my life to be a part of South Africa's transition. I grew up uh, during apartheid. Uh, I was born the year after apartheid came into being or the the, the national um, party came into government. And so it's what I grew up with. And we never thought that it would end. I was was also privileged to have as my mother a very courageous uh, and loving woman who cared deeply about all the people of South Africa and had the courage to stand up for her belief. She taught me to have the courage of your convictions. And so I knew from a very young age that apartheid was wrong. And so as as we as as the years went by and the darkest years came in the 1980s when things just seemed to be spiraling spiraling down and down and down it, nothing seemed possible and so when the transformation began one morning on the 2nd of February 1990 it felt like a miracle and what happened that day was that the then president of the apartheid government, uh, President F.W. de Klerk, uh, in opening parliament, the ninth parliament of the Republic of South Africa, he essentially announced the end of apartheid. He gave an 11-page speech, and on page 9, he just, without changing his voice, 
his inflection, his tone. He just says, and I now declare the release of political prisoners, including Mandela, the, the, uh, um, uh, the unbanning of political parties, including the African National Congress, and the enfra uh, enfranchisement of all South Africans. And we nearly fell off our chairs. I was listening on the radio, as we did in those old days. And we didn't believe it, and somebody went down to Parliament to check that this was true and this wasn't a hoax, and in fact it was true. And so we began a process that we didn't know what to do with. Nobody knew how to do it. Uh, nine days later, I stood on the central square in Cape Town, and I was there waiting all day for, with about 80,000 people from Nelson Mandela to be released from prison. And finally, at about seven in the evening, he appeared on the steps of the city hall. And for about 20 minutes, we just shouted and, and, and called and danced and cried um, our welcome. And then he spoke to us. And for the first time, we saw him because he'd been in prison for 27 years. And the laws of the country prevented us from knowing anything about him, from seeing pictures of him. We didn't know. Um, how he would be and here he was strong and vigorous and with a twinkle in his eye and deep deep seriousness and resonance and and a, a dignity that made him seem a great deal taller than his uh, than his considerable height anyway and we then stepped into uh, a, a interim period which in the end um, lasted over four years and was a godsend because there was so much that needed to change if we had gone directly into elections, it, I, I, I doubt that South Africa would have made it through that period. And as it was, we made it through without the bloody revolution that everybody had expected. And when the peace process itself started, as we moved into that period, nobody really knew what to do with it. And I was drawn in right at the beginning um, and was uh, appointed to the executive committee of the regional peace committee. There were peace committees established uh, in all the, prov the 11 provinces of South Africa. And we began the process of uh, building this peace, bringing people together, uh, discovering each other, uh, we talked endlessly in forums, in, in, in meetings. We, we monitored and mediated out on the streets uh, just about every day. We negotiated with each other as human beings, and we listened to each other and talked with each other as human beings for the first time across the divide of black and white, of right and left, uh, all the divides that were so deeply embedded because apartheid had been extremely successful. And so we learned to just put one foot in front of the other. And, and I remember then that, that the words of the uh, Spanish Civil War poet Antonio Machado always resonated with me when he said, we make the road by walking. And we just learned how to do it. We really didn't know what we were doing. It's the truth of it. And we found our way. And I believe that this is a reflection of really of life. And this is what we do. And we find our way. And the miracle was that we found our way together. And we went into the election in 19, April 1994. And Mandela then stood victorious as the first democratically elected president of South Africa. And I, I haven't cried so many rivers of tears as I did then for, for many other occasions. It was the most extraordinary moment. So 
I, for me, it was a gift, and um, I, 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 I couldn't be more grateful to have been involved. Now, you were originally a journalist. I'm, I'm curious how you became a peacemaker from having been a journalist. Well, you know, in, in those days, the, the world of conflict resolution and peacemaking uh, was not a discipline. There were a, a couple of small courses, but it, it, it didn't look at all like the picture we have today, which is PhD courses, masters, um, a huge, huge uh, academic um, uh, spreading, not only in the United States, but all over the world. And um, so in those days, people came to peacemaking from anything you can think of. Uh, and so in, in many ways, it was a call of the heart. And my own sense is that the roots of my calling to peacemaking came from that childhood with my mother and the uh, seeing at close hand what actually happened. My parents uh, bought a house when I was about um, one year old and they, they did their checks and the plot next door was going to be a post office, so they thought that's fine. Um, in fact, it turned into a police station. That couldn't have been a more troubling and trying and difficult thing for my mother, particularly, and, and as I grew into consciousness, I understood. And so I used to sometimes sit on the wall and, and watch and I saw in those old, bad apartheid days, a policeman walk up to a black man and hold out his hand and say, give me your pass, because everybody had to have a, every, every black South African had to have a pass in those days. And I saw him take the pass and tear it up and say to him, give me your pass, and then grab him and just throw him into prison. And he did it because he could. There was no... Uh, it, there was impunity. There were, there were, uh, the police, all the security forces had no identification on them. They had no name or number on them. And one of the first things that we did with the peace accord was to, and, uh, was to uh, uh, write into it the requirement for all uh, security forces to wear a name tag and, um, so that the, 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 uh, the identity takes away the possibility of impunity, well, it helps a great deal with it. Um, and so for me, it, uh, when I grew up and came of age and, and took myself out of South Africa for a while, it had been a very intense childhood. In many ways, I feel as though I didn't have a very normal childhood um, because of the situation. My mother was um, demonized for being a, a dissident. Uh, many of the her parents of their children wouldn't let them play with me because of my mother. Uh, I didn't really feel that so much. It was more my mother's suffering that I saw and her courage through, through all of it that uh, she would walk into a police station and demand to see um, somebody who'd been picked up like the man I've just described and the, the, the sergeant would laugh at her and say, how can you call this black man, Mr. And she would stand to her full height and she would say, I demand to see the captain and I demand Mr. And she would have her way and she would do it. And so I saw all of this and I knew all of this. And when my turn came as I grew, I began to understand something very profound which is that, first of all, we are all advocates for something all of the time. And that my choice 
that began emerging from within me was to be an advocate not for one side or the other, but to be an advocate for the process of building and making peace, of building bridges, of connecting people, of finding forgiveness and reconciliation, of healing whole societies. Because the only way that we can all heal is when we cross those bridges, when we come together with a common vision and we say, let's now work together for the common good. And I, I believe that, that that must be why I'm here. We all have a purpose. And I was, I, I was blessed to find it and, uh, and then to find my way through all the serendipity that we all know in our lives into this work. When I think about dealing with those, those generations of anger and despair, though, that, that surely you faced as you helped forge the peace accord, you must have had to have been part psychotherapist and part mediator, part monitor. Can you tell me a bit about dealing with the prejudice and anger that, that had to have been dealt with? Uh, it's such a good question because in, in, all, in every conflict, this is, this is the case, the pain the damage, the injury is so great. And, uh, and I think in South Africa's case, the X factor was something which is called Ubuntu. And Ubuntu is African humanism. It means I am because you are. Um, uh, Archbishop Desmond Tutu often talks about it, and he says there are no gate crashes in Ubuntu, which I love. And what it, 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 what it means is that we're all included. Um, it, it means kindness and compassion and care and concern. It means that we don't isolate our old or our uh, uh, mentally or physically impaired people. We, it means that everybody is brought in, that mistakes are forgiven. And that spirit of Ubuntu, which we saw in the Truth and Reconciliation Commission afterwards, this, that came after the New South Africa had been formed, after the democratic election. It was the healing process that was instituted then. And we saw in that the willingness of so many people who had been victims to come and tell their story and, and in, in, to even forgive the people who had killed their loved ones, the people who had destroyed their lives. It, it was the most extraordinary thing. And along with that, and, and that to me is the, 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 the huge factor. It's a huge factor. In addition, the peace process itself, which was different to the negotiations at the top level, which were going on um, to, at, a, at a policy level and at, at the decision-making level of, of what... Uh, what would go to whom in the, the parceling out of, of the new South Africa. At the level of the peacemaking of the National Peace Accord, which encompassed the whole country, we spent those four years, or, or in fact that's not true, um, I'm conflating things. We came into, the peace accord came into being 18 months into that uh, four and a half years. So at that time, our biggest task was to uh, break down the stereotypes, the demonizing, the dehumanization that had happened. And we did that through being together, through inclusivity, through um, listening deeply and, 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 and talking with care and getting to know each other and tackling and wrestling with the issues of the country. So we had all over the country 
in the in under the auspices of the of the peace process we had uh, forums coming together on education on transport on uh, health on local government whatever it may be people from all sides people who had been separated came together to wrestle with the issues that would uh, that that were pertinent to any society how would we handle local government? How would we handle police community relations in the new South Africa? What would it look like? What do we want? What needs to change? What, uh, if anything, do we want to keep from the present, uh, the present system? And so by coming together and focusing on these common issues that affected all of us, we began to know each other and break down the stereotyping. And we began to know each other as human beings. And I know that our common humanity is the core of how we in the world can be together in a different kind of way. And that's what we were really building uh, our new South Africa around. And of course, we weren't able to reach everybody. However, enough people came into the peace process, enough people were engaged and involved, enough people talked and discussed and, and argued in, in communities and between communities to make the difference and to carry us across the, what could have been an abyss of, of, of destruction into, in fact, what was then the new South Africa. Yes, you have a quote uh, from your book, Watching the Wind, which is a lovely book uh, describing the, the forging of this peace accord. Uh, when people discover humanity in their enemies, they find it more difficult to remain enemies. And I, I think it, it really speaks volumes there. It does. And, and um, Desmond Tutu also said, um, an enemy is a friend waiting to be made. And, um, you know, with his, his sort of his trademark chuckle and, and smile on his face. Um, and we, we, we can't... Uh, when we have the only way we can do the things that we do to each other that are cruel and and disrespectful and um, and unkind and destructive is when we dehumanize the other and demonize the other. Once we've humanized the other, we can't do those things. And so much of my own work and the work of Search for Common Ground around the world for the last nearly 35 years of our existence has been that humanizing of the other, the, 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 the principles that I'm talking with you about are at the core of it. Yeah, let's talk a little bit about Search for Common Ground. It's your NGO that specializes in international conflict uh, resolution. Well, this is a lovely story because John, my husband John Marx, founded Search for Common Ground in 1982. And the epiphany that led to the founding of it happened in the big house at Esalen in what's now Murphy House. Um, John um, was invited by Michael to a conference and um, and John himself uh, had been through some personal uh, uh, some uh, personal transformational um, processes and he at the big house in the course of one of his meetings there with with Michael that Michael had convened he suddenly got that we have to find another way to deal with our conflicts. And many people have had these kinds of ideas. What was different with John was that he was able to operationalize it. 
And what he saw at that time, which was the height of the Cold War, and, and the way he, uh, he would talk about it, he would say, it's rather like two teenagers standing ankle deep in gas and arguing about how many matches they've got in their matchboxes. It was so dangerous and it was so ludicrous. And so he realized that there were other ways to deal with conflict, that conflict is normal and natural. We'll always have our differences, but how we handle it is what counts. And the knee-jerk reaction in our world, and still it is today, is to handle it with violence, whether it's physical violence or emotional violence, um, you know, verbal violence, uh, you know, all structural violence, all of these are forms of violence. And we don't have to handle our differences that way. We really, really don't. And the alternatives are not only viable, but they are constructive. They build relationship. They give us inner and outer peace. They change everything. And what John did was to operationalize that. And um, when I joined him 11 years later, he had uh, completed the initial nine or ten years of work with the, uh, between the Soviet Union and the U.S., which was the beginnings of Search for Common Ground. By now, the Berlin Wall had come down, um, the Cold War was over, uh, Search for Common Ground was now uh, getting established in the Middle East region, and there were a, a dozen or 15 people at Search when I joined, and the generosity of John was to uh, welcome me in and um, allow me to join him in search. And together we were in the leadership of search until uh, 18 months ago when we stepped down. And we built the organization to, um, the stats are lovely actually, uh, 600 staff, from 50 different nationalities in 35 countries all over the world. And um, it, it was the most wonderful ride for all those years. How do you get invited into a country? Uh, what would be an example of a country that you've, that you've worked in and, and helped negotiate a conflict? Well, um, let me first of all say that the, the absolute jewels of Search for Common Ground are all the people who came to join us and this, the, the colleagues at, at Search for Common Ground who were also, like, you know, like us, um, drawn to, to this. This, uh, this was what they were here to do. And so um, I, I speak of the stories of my colleagues as, as well as my own stories because they're the ones who um, took this on and became um, social entrepreneurs in their own rights in the places that they were working. So for instance, um, let me give you an example of different ways that we, were, we would go into a conflict. Uh, we went to Burundi after the Rwanda genocide to help prevent the same thing happening in Burundi, which had also had at least by then 200,000 people killed. Uh, mm. But it wasn't on the scale of Rwanda, and there was still a possibility of preventing the same thing happening. And um, we worked with the, under the auspices of the United Nations there, and we established a radio station. You, you may remember that in Rwanda, the, one of the main mechanisms for mobilizing people to do the killing was a radio station. Um, and this was because this is the, 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 the drum of Africa is radio and has been for a long time. 
And um, about a, a year or two later, we were approached by the then Minister of Cooperation in the Netherlands, who said, we're very impressed with the radio station, Studio Ijambo, uh, which means wise words, which is, I think, lovely in Swahili. Uh, and we would like to establish something similar in Liberia. And we looked at it because we, and, and they would provide the funding. And we've always said we will not let funding drive what we do. So we researched and looked and we felt that actually this was a very good project and how great that there would be funding. So we started the program in Liberia. And uh, within a, 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 a couple of years, the, uh, refuge, there were some refugees from Sierra Leone, the next country over, who began to work with us. And they said, we really need this work in Sierra Leone. And so we again explored, uh, our, our, our colleagues on the ground explored, would this be possible? And we then established the program in Sierra Leone at the request of those Sierra Leoneans. And then we realized that the, the conflict was in, uh, uh, really involved Guinea and conflicts don't stop at borders. I mean, you know, it's, it's, it, that's one of the fallacies that you can say, oh, it's contained. It isn't. And, um, and so we realized that we also needed to open an office in Guinea. And um, Cote d'Ivoire, the Ivory Coast is next door. We opened there too. So all of these things uh, happened because Local people, in that case, asked us to. The poss we then explored possibilities of um, of auspices. Uh, when you when you want to start a program, you need to talk to um, a lot of people. You need to talk to the government, to the opposition, because uh, there nearly always is one, to the international community, to civil society, to uh, foundations and funders, to um, the religious institutions, business leaders, um, women, women's institutions, all of these things. You need to hear from people and hear what it is they're thinking, what they want, and what they think of the idea. Because only with that stamp of approval, that sense of, yes, this is something that brings value added, will we ever go into a, a new country. Because if there are people already yes. doing the work or it's not needed, then we wouldn't go because it's, you know, resources are very, very scarce. And we want to go where we can make a difference, and we need to hear that from the people concerned. Mm. I want to ask you a bit about the sensibilities behind peacemaking. I, I believe all of us would like to have the, the power of, of keeping peace and helping peace. What's a practical tool in terms of sensibility that you could suggest to the average person who wishes to enhance his or her ability to help make peace in difficult situations? You know, this can be in your family. I mean, we all have conflicts in our families. In fact, I think our families are our biggest teaching ground in, in, in our lives. And then, our, you know, around that, our schools, our workplaces, our community, uh, this is where most of us reside in our lives and experience the inevitable conflicts. If you, if you think about conflicts um, as incompatible goals, it's a, it's a very simple but clear definition. In other words, I want one thing and you want another. Then that's really what conflict is about. It's about difference. And then what do we do with it? So if we think it's about incompatible goals, then all we have to do is look to ourselves and see what would happen if I were one of the parties to that and I wanted one thing and I was up against a, an establishment or an opposition that wanted something else? What would I feel and what would help me to move through it? 
And generally speaking, the most important thing that we can do, first of all, is to listen deeply and understand that listening is not agreeing. It's very important because sometimes people feel that they can't talk to a person on the other side because they disagree with them so much. For instance, a political party if, uh, between Re Republicans and Democrats. Uh, listening to one on the other side is not the same as agreeing, but that respectful listening not only goes a long way towards building bridges, but it actually changes something. Because when we really listen deeply to people's passion and their vision, and we understand that because it's different to ours doesn't make it bad or wrong, it changes something in us, just as the respectful listening changes something in the other. And that is the, I think it's one of the most profound tools that we can all do, and most of us are pretty bad at. Um, you know, I, I actually think that I, I, I'm, I'm the biggest beneficiary of my work in the world is, is me because I've learned so much through it and I've learned so much from the people that I've worked with all over the world in, in the Middle East, in Asia, uh, throughout Africa, I, you know, in Eastern Europe, all, in all the places that we work in, in the United States. I've, I've, I've learned, I've listened, I've seen extraordinary people do extraordinary things. And listening is, is one of the core um, uh, tools that we can all use. And if we are to be a third party between opposing people and opposing groups, what we can do is help them to listen to each other. And this is the first step. You know, then the, the hard stuff comes also when you've, you've listened deeply and you've said, yes, we now have a sense of who you are and why you believe that and we understand it. What do you do with that? Um, however, by the very fact of truly beginning to understand, relationship has been built. There's an empathy and a compassion that comes in. As we say, I don't agree with you. And I understand why you feel the way you do. I understand what it is you, 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 you feel. We can't do that when the rhetoric is high. We can't do that when we're shouting at each other. And mm. so instead of facing each other as the problem, what we can do is help people to sit together and face the problem together. And that's mediation. And mediation is, in a sense, the, the principles of mediation are the basic tools of peacemaking. It's funny, we don't, we don't often do actual mediation. We're much more facilitating, um, because we're working at a societal level, we at Search for Common Ground are much more facilitating much bigger and broader issues within which people discover each other. However, the principles are always the same. And I've known many um, people in community in the United States uh, and indeed all over the world who have, just for their own purposes, done a mediation course. You can do a weekend course because it gives the tools to be of such service in your life and in those, you know, to those that you love and those that you care about around you. All right. So how about if you're in the conflict yourself, how does this differ? I mean, I imagine that the, the skills you've just described would be very useful as well. Yes, indeed. Because what can often, often happen, if you've got, if you've, now got this sensibility of listening and of understanding that listening is not agreeing and of understanding that just because somebody is dif different to you doesn't make them the enemy. If you've already got to that point, 
then you can apply that into your own conflicts. And um, sometimes we talk about it as having difficult conversations. How do you have a difficult conversation with a loved one or with a coworker or um, you know, with, between groups? And so it becomes a different kind of question because that's by definition not being, it, it's a, a conversation you, you could have it mediated, but let's say you're just doing it yourselves. And with somebody with these sensibilities, you can start modeling a different way of being. However, it's, it's quite difficult if, the, if there are many people involved and the, the, the rest of them have not got the sensibility. So let's just say it's a one-on-one that you're, you're doing and you're initiating the difficult conversation. Then the same principles apply. Really to start with the, with the question of you know, um, what's going on for you. Tell me about it. What does it mean? What do you really care about? What, are the, what, what, are, you know, what, what matters to you? And I, I would sometimes represent it as imagine two trees and the, the trunks come down and then you draw a line, that's the earth. And underneath there are these roots. And the roots of the trees, the trees are quite close to each other in your drawing. And the roots are going out in all directions. And quite a lot of those roots will cross over. And that's the place that we can work, is where the underlying um, um, values and principles and the things that matter can start to connect with each other. So you have to get under the ground. You have to get beyond the positions that the trees represent. You know, my position is I believe X, and the other person, my position is I believe Y, and that's all there is to it. So by beginning to ask the questions of what really matters to you here, I understand your position. Help me to understand how you got there. And what does it mean to you? And how did you come to this place? What happened in your life? And you begin to go into the, that root system, and that's what we call the interests. We, we, we begin to uncover the real interests, the real concerns that often have nothing to do with the directly that you can see with the position. The position is just an outcome of that. So it, it, it takes learning to do it, and it, it does over years become pretty automatic, though I have to say that the, for me, with all these years that I've been doing this, many decades, I still fall flat on my face and, and, um, and, and do, and will, what's the best way I can say this? I will really behave badly is the best way I can say it at times. <laughs> I'll forget everything that I know and I'll, I'll, you know, I'll lash out. And I always am so ashamed afterwards because I feel I should know better. And then I realize that I need to remember that I'm just human too. And that in a way, it would be arrogant to think that I wouldn't do this. And so I welcome it when I can, when I'm sort of feeling sensible again. Say, well, that taught me and that's just to remind me. And to remind me of the humanity of all of us, the fragility of all of us. Now, I wanted to ask you a bit about uh, the context in, in which I met you at Esalen. You, you obviously didn't come there as a, a peacemaker. You came more, I, I believe, as a guide. So, so if you could talk a bit about your connection to Esalen and uh, your work outside of peacemaking, the, the, how that has infused the, the person who you've become and your other interests. Well, Esalen is a very um, special place in our lives, and we come every year as workshop leaders um, for a weekend, and then we stay on as visiting teachers for, and visiting scholars for another week. 
And that's a pattern that's been in place for a number of years and is a great joy to us. I have to tell you a story. When I first met John in South Africa during the South African peace process, uh, and we fell in love within about 25 hours, and, uh, and we also realized very quickly that we had a destiny together, a work destiny together. We shared a vision and that this was something that was meant to be. Uh, I had, a, a, two weeks after that, already planned a month of leave, of, of vacation. In the um, intensity of the work in South Africa, I'd learned that I needed to get right out for three or four weeks each year to restore myself and I was just about to do that so I just changed destinations and I went to Washington to be with John and then we went to the West Coast to meet his family and while I was there he said to me let's take a week um, and for him taking a week off work was a very big deal he's so committed and has worked all the hours that are possible for the last 30 something years on on this work he said let's take a week and we can go anywhere you like where would you like to go? And I thought about it and I said, what's, what's your favorite place? And without missing a beat, he said, Esalen. And so we came to Esalen on a personal retreat um, for a number of days. And that was my introduction to Esalen in 1993. And I fell in love with Esalen then. And um, it's still a very, very alive love affair. So um, for me, um, being at Esalen with the community and having got to know the community over many, many years now, it's, it's like a beloved family to me. And so the, the time that we're there after the workshop, um, when we're with the community, is a very special time. And apart from the um, coaching that, uh, that, that I do with community members, we're just there and available and People sometimes come and talk with us. We see old friends and we talk with them. Um, and we are present at Esalen for that week. And I've learned in my life about presence. Um, you've had the grace not to ask me how old I am. And I will tell you because I'm, I'm 66 now. And I've understood that being an elder, one of the key parts of being an elder is presence. And... Being present in the fullness of whatever it is that we each bring and embracing that and being present for other people, to me, is a, is a sacred trust. And so I just hope to be present at Esalen and allow what will happen to happen outside of any formal commitments that we might have. Hey, I really love that you just mentioned that because when I met you at Esalen, I absolutely noticed your, your presence and your ability to bring out my own uh, during our conversation. And I'm wondering, I mean, we didn't really get into this in our discussion of the peacemaking process, but there has to be something that lies beneath the surface that uh, helps this incredibly difficult process to happen. It's not nuts and bolts uh, all. It's, I think there's a huge uh, amount of power of presence in, that will make the impossible possible. Um, I, I really do think that this is so. And w what we've often talked about is, um, uh, and what's talked about in our field is the distinction between the transformational and the technical. 
and the transformational is, is includes presence it it includes the the unnamed things the technical the um, technical expertise in in the um, in, in negotiation and mediation and so on um, is necessary but not sufficient and uh, how I would frame it is that the technical is in service of the transformational and that we draw on the technical as and when it's appropriate and as and when it fits and and we intuitively we, we learn with time to do that at an absolutely intuitive level and that the building of relationship the connection the trust remember trust has to be at the heart of this trust uh, comes from this other piece it doesn't come from the technical however having said that good process builds trust so you know the two are very deeply connected and the, the, the trust building um, and being trustworthy oneself which is the basis of being trusted is an essential part of this work it's it's uh, trust is is built from that very inner place of being trustworthy it's built from doing what you say you'll do it's built from showing up it's built from compassion it's built from not judging and so we learn the difference between judgment and discernment and it's not possible really to do this work from a place of judgment mm-hmm. uh, it's it, it, it you know you, you can't do that I've sat with people who've told me things luckily that I've got such a bad memory now I don't remember most of them but have told me uh, things that um, you know are, one would judge very easily from um, a, another place in life and and um, but with discernment we learn we learn to find our way through things and I think that's an incredibly important distinction do you have any self-care practices that you're devoted to that help uh, bring out your own presence your own equanimity um, I'm so glad that you asked that too you, you you your questions are quite wonderful it's so it's so easy to talk with you and and, and thank you um, the the you, I um, have been very involved with leadership um, development wise leadership for um, f- at least 15 20 years in fact all the way through but I, I institutionalized about 15 years ago and the um, I've worked with high-level leaders all over the world one-on-one with cabinet ministers and and this kind of and political party political leaders and and institutional leaders and so on and um, one of the pieces of my own teaching on this and remember we always teach that which we, we most need to learn it really is true uh, is that the old model the old model of leadership was to burn out essentially everything for the cause and the new model then the new model that has to um, become uh, widespread is actually self-care so that we can care for others and it, 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 the new generation of leaders um, is beginning to learn that and beginning to understand that and I'm so pleased I couldn't be more pleased I myself have burnt out um, I became very very ill I was living in Jerusalem John and I were living in Jerusalem at the time this is going back 13 or 14 years and I became desperately ill and couldn't work for nearly two years 
Um, and that was burnout. It, you know, it manifested as, as serious illness. It was burnout. And so I'm a beautiful example, and I use it, of what happens when we don't take care of ourselves, because I didn't. So now I rest when I need to, and I'm at the point where I can. But even in the years before, um, I stepped down from the leadership of Search uh, 16, 18 months ago. Um, I had begun to change my life. And the, the tricky part is that by then I'd also begun to withdraw. And how do you do this when you're in the full, full swing of things? So um, my own sense and the work that I've done with people in their 30s and 40s and going into their 50s who are still absolutely engaged and involved full time in what they're doing is, first of all, to have some kind of practice, whether it's walking in nature, whether it's uh, gardening, whether it's reading poetry, whether it's obviously meditating or prayer um, or some uh, other religious practice, but whatever it may be, to really make that a central part of one's life. Um, whatever brings us back to ourselves, whatever brings us to that place of inner peace, whatever connects us with our deepest selves, that's the peace. That's the, the, the practice. That's the experience. That's the, the being and doing that I believe saves us from the burnout. And then to build on that, with the, uh, the uh, rest when, it's a, when we can and making sure that we get enough. Um, how to deal with the avalanche of email is a constant one and working with how to do that. Uh, dealing with the um, endless um, nature of the work that so many people in our world are engaged in, whether it's in government or in the non-governmental sector, it doesn't matter. It's an endless, endless thing, lurching from crisis to crisis in our world today at an internal and external level, internal to the organization and also out in the world. And so from the basis of the inner equanimity that we can get to at different times of the day, even a five-second coming back to ourselves can help write us before a difficult conversation or a phone call or a meeting, just a centering um, built on the bigger practice of walking in nature or, or praying and meditating, whatever it is that's right for each of us, and then uh, bringing into it good friends, conviviality, somebody to talk to, always have somebody to talk to, um, whether it's a, a trusted person, whether it's a friend, a family, a spouse, whoever it may be, but have at least one person to be able to talk with who will listen deeply and hear you. And these are some of the things that I, I offer and, and, and work with with so many people. And what's interesting, and when I'm doing a workshop on, this, on leadership and bringing this whole element of self-care, and I ask people to start brainstorming, what are the ways that you can care for yourself? The list goes on from uh, pages and pages and pages of, of newsprint or flip charts. It, it really, people have got such good ideas. And even doing that just with your colleagues or with a, a, a few friends, you'd be surprised at what you come up with. And so we start with ourselves, which is the place to always start with the transformation of anything. And we pay attention and we take notice. And we begin the process of stopping the habits 
of demonizing the other. And I know that every human being that begins to do something like that and sets that intention changes something in our world. I know that absolutely with every fiber of my being. Thank you, Susan. We've been speaking with Susan Colin Marks, the author of Watching the Wind, a book about forging the peace accord in South Africa after the release of Nelson Mandela. Her NGO is Search for Common Ground. She is a workshop leader, teacher, and guide at the Esalen Institute. And it's been such a pleasure to speak with you today, Susan. Oh, Sam, thank you so much for having me on your program. I'm deeply honored. Thank you for listening to Voices of Esalen. This show is produced in conjunction with Cheryl Franzel, Geraldine Hess, Shannon Hudson, and Lori Putnam. Today's song is Siesta by Jazar. Special thanks today to Ian Michael Hebert for recommending that I speak with Susan. Who do you want to hear an interview with? Send us an email at voicesofesalyn at gmail.com. Let me know who you think is really fascinating. For more episodes, visit us on iTunes or check out the website, esalen.org. That's E-S-A-L-E-N. All the episodes are there. Until next week, I'm your host, Sam Stern.